We uh, began a series last Sunday morning that we've entitled Overcoming Offenses. And we, uh, I hope you were with us. Oh, let me just ask you a question. How many of you were with us last Sunday morning? Okay, about half the crowd, it looks like. Okay, for those of you that were not, we, uh, we talked about forgiveness and we talked about what real forgiveness is. We looked at the story of uh, Joseph in the Old Testament and the, the New Testament parallels that it gives us. I would very much encourage you to, uh, to get a hold of the, the teaching. Uh, go to the website, download it to, on your podcast, or uh, there's any number of ways for you to get it, and uh, and you can get it without charge. But I, I really would uh, encourage you to uh, to get a hold of it. It's uh, it's kind of the foundation for some things that we want to say this morning, and we don't have the time to go back and relay the the same groundwork that we did last week. Uh, suffice it to say, though, we talked about what the Bible requires of us as Christians. And how forgiveness is different now than it was under the New Testament or uh, under the, the Gospels when Jesus was here. The Bible says, uh, and I think we took a text scripture last uh, last Sunday morning of Mark chapter 11. Uh, we all know verses 22 and 23 and 24 where it talks about faith. But verse 25, Jesus goes on to say, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody. Because if you forgive others, then God will forgive you. Well, that's not the, the way that forgiveness works now that Jesus has gone, been to the cross and raised from the dead. Forgiveness under the old covenant, and even when Jesus was here on the earth, was dependent on you forgive others and God will forgive you. Well, that's not how it works now. Ephesians chapter 4, let's start reading in verse, uh, well, let's just start in verse 29. It says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. In other words, watch your words. But that, or only that which is good to the use of edifying, building other people up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. We need to be aware of what we're saying and the impact it has on other people, in other words. And he goes further and says in verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Um, our words can grieve God. Our words to other people can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that he leaves you. It means that it will hinder you, just like grief in any area will hinder you. It'll cause you to lose your focus. It'll cause you to lose your, uh, um, well, when we're grieving about something, it makes us dull. Speaking the wrong words, living a lifestyle where we speak the wrong words, words that don't lift people up and instead bring them down, will cause us to lose our spiritual sharpness or will cause us to be spiritually dull. The Holy Ghost doesn't leave us, but you will be less conscious of him being there and you'll be less conscious of his direction. So it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So this must be the corrupt communication that he's talking about in verse 29. He's saying don't say bitter words. Don't be clamorous or use your, let your words create strife with other people. Don't be angry in your words and sin. Remember, Paul says a little bit further on in the fifth chapter, he says, be angry and sin not. Anger itself is not a sin, but you can let it result in sin if you don't watch what you say and do. And he goes further in verse 20, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 32, and says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now notice this is different than the Old Testament, forgive and it'll be forgiven you. This is forgiving, we're supposed to forgive as other people, uh, I'm sorry, we're supposed to forgive other people as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. In other words, we're supposed to forgive like God does. Well, how did God forgive? God didn't wait for you to say you were sorry. He sent Jesus to the cross anyway. He didn't make, and, and even salvation is not a matter of you telling him all the wrong things that you've ever done. You couldn't remember all the wrong things you've ever done. 
he has forgiven you for Christ's sake. That doesn't have anything to do with because of the way Jesus feels or anything like that. For Christ's sake literally means because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. So we're supposed to forgive, isn't it? Uh, it's always seemed to me to be interesting that Paul would have to tell Christians to be kind to one another. Because that's not our natural tendency, is it? Tenderhearted toward one another. Well, that's not our natural tendency either. Now, we'll be tenderhearted to people that are good to us. We'll be kind to people that are kind to us. But we always want to step back and let somebody else make the first move, don't we? That's the natural tendency. And that's what he's saying, that things are different. That's how things have changed under the new covenant now that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're supposed to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Now, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus talking about forgiveness. And, of course, he wasn't just speaking of forgiveness under the old covenant. He's talking about the principle of forgiveness, knowing what he's going to do when he goes to the cross. Notice what he said about forgiveness. He answered a question. I, uh, here's Peter stepping up and saying something. You know, I, I just, every time I see Peter speaking up in, in Jesus' ministry, nine times out of ten, I just can't help but think that afterwards he thinks, why did I say a word? Why didn't I keep my mouth shut? So it says here in verse 21, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? I'm thinking Peter's thinking seven times is a lot. I mean, otherwise, if he's really wanting to know if the answer to the question is really on his mind, how often should I forgive somebody? Why does he throw in seven times? Do you see my point? He must be trying to say, get Jesus to say, oh, seven times is great, Peter. You're doing good. But Jesus answered and said unto him, verse 22, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times 70. I'm sorry, 70 times seven. The number's too big for me. I get messed up on it. That's 490 times. Now, notice what the the question is. If somebody does me wrong on purpose, it's not talking about an accident. It's talking about if somebody does me wrong on purpose, how often should I put up with that? Jesus says 490 times. Now, in Luke 17, Luke's account of this says that the apostles heard this and they said immediately, Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) Well, that's a good statement. Because they understand that forgiveness is going to have to be a faith proposition, not a feeling proposition. If you're going to be held responsible to forgive like that, and folks, this is a good example. I, I don't I don't really think it's possible for somebody to do you wrong 490 times a day. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. But nevertheless, I think Jesus is just trying to throw a number out there that's beyond their ability to comprehend in real life experience to show the way that God forgives. In other words, God's forgiveness is without understanding. It's before you ever ask for it. We come to Jesus having found out what Jesus did, not trying to get him to do something for us. Now, I want to talk to you about three words this morning. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Now, my purpose this morning is to talk about some things from a scriptural standpoint because there is a lot of misunderstanding about the love of God out there, it seems to me, at least from what I hear people say. A lot of misunderstanding. And forgiveness is something that is required of us. It's not required of you but for one reason, and that is to release you so that God can work in your life. That's the whole reason that God requires us to forgive. He requires us to forgive so that you Get free from the bondage of unforgiveness. Now, you forgiving other people 
may have no impact on them whatsoever. No impact whatsoever. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. We're right here in Matthew chapter 18. Why don't you go ahead and turn back with me to chapter 7. Jesus said some marvelous things and, and as a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one of the greatest expositions of the things of God known to man. Just about every Christian denomination will take the, the Sermon on the Mount and they'll say, what a wonderful, wonderful thing it is. And, and there's so much of it people just let pass right over their heads. Notice in chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And what measure you meet, meaning judgment, it shall be measured unto you again. The way that you judge other people is the way that you're going to be judged. Now, we take that verse of Scripture, or the church takes that verse of Scripture, and it comes up with this blanket statement that we should never judge. But there's a problem with that. The problem with that is the Bible tells us to judge. For example, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let me read some scripture to you over here that Paul spoke to us about the born-again Christian experience. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at about verse 14, he said, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, who is the natural man? Well, certainly the natural man would be the unsaved man, but it could also be the carnal Christian. The person who's been changed from the inside, but still living according to the flesh. And that's what he means here when he's talking about the natural man. He's talking about the man that lives according to the flesh. And that man can be in one of two categories. He can either be unsaved, and certainly an unsaved person, that's all he can live by is the flesh. Or it could be the person who has been saved, but hasn't renewed their mind to the word so that it's affected their lives. A lot of Christians, you know as well as I do, a lot of Christians live carnal Christian lives. In other words, body-ruled lives, just like the world does. For that reason, a lot of the world can't tell the difference between who's saved and who's not. So it says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Why? Because he's living according to his flesh. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Please notice this. The person is living according to his flesh cannot know the things of God whether saved in a car, as a carnal Christian, living as a carnal Christian, or the unsaved. They can't know the things of God. doesn't say it's hard for them. It says they can't. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they, the things of God, are spiritually discerned or understood or judged. That's what this word means. It means judged. It's the same word that's used and translated judged in verse 15. But he that is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of Christ, mind of the Lord that he, we may in, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So we've got what some people would consider to be a contradiction in Scripture. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Judge not lest you be judged. Paul said by the Holy Ghost in 1 Corinthians 2, He that is spiritual judges all things. Now, the reason that I'm going in this direction is because we want to talk about the love of God. We want to talk about forgiveness specifically. And this idea of judgment seems to be big in, in, in the world around us. I mean, so many times people are saying, well, you're judging me. Or nobody can judge me but God. I saw a, a bumper sticker on somebody's car the other day riding down the road, and it said, nobody can judge me but God. On the other bumper sticker, it had a fish. I thought to myself, I know exactly who that person is. 
That's a person who's living a carnal Christian life and doesn't want to hear anybody say a word about it. Now, how can these two verses be true? How can we judge not so that we're not judged and still be spiritual and judge all things? Well, folks, the key is judging all things. You can judge all things without judging people. The Bible says judge not lest you be judged, meaning don't judge other people. But that doesn't mean don't judge the things that are going on around you. Now, here's why that's important. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 20, I think it is, says this. It says, an adulterous woman eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. Now, that's a good illustration of the way the world's going right now. Because people are doing whatever they want to do and saying, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Well, is that right or not? I mean, we see the church using, in a lot of cases, using the grace message, using this idea that God has unconditional love. That's a great term, but unconditional love does not mean a doormat variety of love. What I see a lot of people using as unconditional love, describing as unconditional love, they're trying to make an excuse for why God should be okay with whatever they want to do, no matter whether it agrees with the Bible or not. Well, God's going to love me no matter what, and only God can judge me. Well, folks, the Bible's real clear on this. The Word already judges us. The Word of God already judges us. It lays out very clearly what we're doing is either right or wrong, as either in line with the principles and and the, the character of God or contrary to the principles and character of God. There is no matter of judging things as, you know, God judging us for what we do, what we do. The Bible's already there. When you get to heaven as a Christian, there's only one question that God's going to ask you. He's going to say, did you keep my word? That's the only thing we're required to do is to keep the word of God. That's why, thank goodness, for the Christian, there is no great white throne judgment where God says, you sinned here, you sinned here, you messed up here. Okay, once you did good over here, but thank God we don't have any of that. Because for the Christian, the Bible says there's just a, 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 an experience that we have, really a, a, what's intended to be an award ceremony before God, where we, where the things that we did here on this earth are judged according to the word, And if they were things that were done for eternity, they'll last. If they were things that were done just for the time being, just for the sake of the, of living in the moment, then they'll burn up like wood, hay, and stubble, the Bible says. So what's intended for God, uh, by God to be an award ceremony is going to be for a lot of people a great, great big bonfire. But it's not God judging us. It's the word already judging things. And that's what we're supposed to use as a standard to judge things. Now, folks, I'm still talking about love. I'm still talking about forgiveness. Because here's the question. If we're not supposed to judge, how can it be that somebody says, well, I didn't do anything wrong? You got two people. One person has been very much hurt. The other person says, I didn't do anything wrong. Who's right? See, here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not ignoring something that happened or pretending that it didn't happen. You can never forgive if you pretend something didn't happen. And and here again, you get a lot of people in the body of Christ, they're talking about, well, the love of God forgives and forgets. No, the Bible says God forgets. Show me anybody here on the earth that can forget. In fact, the Bible doesn't even tell us to forget where it comes to things like that. It tells us to forget our past. The one thing Paul said about our past is, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, I press forward. So we should forget our past. Absolutely, we should forget our past. And we should, in some cases, do our best to try to forget what other people have done to us. But somebody once said, if we ignore our past, we're destined to, re- uh, to relive it. 
Let me talk to you about reconciliation a little bit. Reconciliation and forgiveness do not always go hand in hand. I had somebody come to me. Um, well, let me let me give you an example, and then I'll then I'll tell you something that happened uh, years ago in the church. If, for example, you've got two couples that are best friends, if the husband of one couple and the wife of the other couple have an affair, then the husband whose wife had the affair might forgive his wife and may even be able to reconcile the marriage. But the chances are pretty good he's lost his best friend. Chances are pretty good that that husband is never going to be best friends in the same way that friendship is not going to survive or be reconciled in the same way that it was before. Would anybody argue that? I mean, unless it's just a wife swap thing, for goodness sakes, how could anybody, you know, go back to the way things were before? Well, should they be reconciled? And here again, you get this this sloppy love of God attitude that some people have. Well, the love of God forgives and forgets. Folks, there's some things that would be ridiculous to try to forget. Now, let me tell you the story of something that happened in the church years ago. So a family used to come to the church, and, and um, uh, the lady uh, confided in me. She's since uh, come out and gone public with the, the situation. And you don't know who I'm talking about anyway, so this, isn't, uh, this wouldn't betray any confidence. But um, uh, she d- confided in me at the time that uh, her father had molested her when she was a girl growing up. And, uh, and the mother hit her head in the sand about it and just denied everything and anything and didn't happen and so forth. And so the mom was really pushing for everybody getting together on Thanksgiving and having these family dinners and everybody just getting along and so forth. And, and the whole family was putting pressure on the, on the, the lady that was in our church. You know, here's what you ought to do. I mean, you, you, this is, this is wrong. Some of them thought that she was falsely accusing the father and others, others thought, well, okay, dad's changed. And, and, you know, this, she was just getting it from every angle. And so she came to me one day and she said, Pastor Mike, here's what's going on. What should I do? And I said, well, what do you want to do? She said, well, I don't really know. I'm so confused. I really don't know what I want to do. I, I can't imagine, um, being able to sit across the table at these family dinners and stuff like that and, and, and everything be okay. And I said, well, why would you want to? Why would, I don't understand. I mean, if you told me that's what you wanted to do, I'd say, okay, suit yourself. But why in the world would you want to? And she, she got this shocked look on her face. And I mean, here I'm supposed to be speaking for God. And she said, you mean God doesn't expect me to do that? And I said, are you out of your mind? Of course he doesn't expect you to do that. Why would he expect you to do that? Well, because I'm supposed to forgive. And I said, look, we're talking about two different things. I said, what does forgive mean? We went through the whole thing. I said, have you forgiven your father for what he did? She said, yeah, I still have feelings about it, but yeah, I have forgiven it. I said, what do you do when you think about your father? She said, well, I've learned from you that I'm supposed to pray for him. So every time I think about my father or the things from the past, I pray for what he, for him, you know, Lord help him. Certainly he, he wasn't thinking right. I mean, who would do those things to his children? with any kind of right thinking. And so she said, I pray for him. I pray for God to bless him. I pray for God to help him. I said, well, then that's forgiveness. I said, you have forgiven him. I said, what your family is trying to push you to do is reconcile with him. I said, has your father admitted what he did? She said, oh, no, he's acted like it never happened. I said, has your father, well, then your father hasn't asked you, has you forgive him? He hasn't acknowledged anything. There's been no effort on his part to try to make things right then, Right. She said, oh, no, none whatsoever. I said, well, reconciliation takes two people. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me show you something. 
First Corinthians chapter five. Paul writing by the Holy Ghost. Made a very important statement. I'm sorry, it's Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five, notice in verse 19, it says to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now, can I ask you a question? Why in the world would the Bible say in verse 19 that God has already reconciled us to himself through Jesus and then tell us in verse 20 that we need to be reconciled to him? The answer is very simple, and that is because reconciliation takes two parties. God can't reconcile us to himself and it be a one-sided thing. He's done everything for reconciliation to be made by the work of Jesus. But when you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus accepting what he has done. And if you don't accept what he's done, even though Jesus paid the price for every sin that you ever will commit, ever have committed or ever will commit, even though that price has been paid, it doesn't benefit you because you haven't made the move toward God. That's why salvation is your decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's your decision to accept the forgiveness that Jesus has made available to you. Well, that's the way reconciliation works in every area, folks. A a relationship can't be reconciled unless both parties want to. So the idea that this this forgiveness is just this blanket thing that covers everything and 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 no matter what, that's just ridiculous. It's foolish. And as a result, a lot of Christians, because they've got this doormat mentality of what the love of God's supposed to be, they put themselves back into the same situations they had before and they get taken advantage of once again. Can you see that? Turn with me back to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Let me show you a little bit further what the Bible says about this. I don't want anybody to take what I'm saying today and, and use it for justification for why they can still be mad at somebody that did them wrong. And I know that it can be taken that way. So let me point out some other things here. We just read the first couple of verses of Matthew 7 about judge not lest you be judged. Notice in verse Three. We'll start in verse three. It says, "And why beholdest thou the mote?" The word "mote" is the word is a word "speck" that means "speck." It means a small piece of something. It said, "And why beholdest thou the speck that is in thy brother's eye, but consider not the beam, big stick, that is in your own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote, speck out of thine eye, and behold, a beam or a stick is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First cast out the beam or the big stick." out of your own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote or the speck out of the brother's eye. Now, let me tell you how most people read this. Most people read these verses of Scripture to say, you have no business trying to correct somebody else because you've got your own problems. And that's as far as they go. And so we look at these verses of Scripture and we think, well, okay, then I, I guess I'm I guess I'm supposed to just keep my mouth shut and, and realize that the, I've got my own issues and God has forgiven me of my own things and so I need to leave things alone. That's not what he's saying. Notice he says that the way for you to be qualified to help somebody else with their problems is to be observant of your own first. The whole point is 
be objective about your own issues, about your own life, about your own behavior. And this is the very reason why most family situations aren't put back together without some outside help. Because the family people, the individuals, whatever comes up in the family situation, whatever crisis, whatever circumstance occurs, the two people in the family know each other so well, one starts saying, you know, you need to do this, and the other says, who are you to tell me you need to do this? And so it becomes this loggerhead conflict where nobody is willing to give because nobody is willing to step back and look at themselves objectively and say, you know, you're right, I need to take care of these things myself. Jesus is very simply saying it takes a special qualification to be able to help somebody with the sin in their own life. Now let me compare this to another scripture. We just see where he says, how can you get the, bean, the, smoke, the speck out of somebody else's eye if you've got something in your own eye? By the way, the, the point here is not that the person, the, the first person has a bigger problem than the second person. The same speck looks different depending on how close you get to it. See, what's a speck in your eye? If I put right here in my own eye, it looks like a big stick. He's saying you both got your own things to deal with. But now, if you want to, hold your finger here. We may come back and look at it a little bit further. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 18. This all still goes with this judgment stuff. How are we supposed to judge things? Notice he said, Jesus is still speaking here in Matthew chapter 18. And notice he said uh, in verse 15, he said, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought we weren't supposed to try to help somebody with their problems because we got stuff in our own eyes. How do these things fit together? Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word will be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. You know how most people read these verses of Scripture? Aha, here's the process where we can get everybody against the person that did me wrong. We can get the whole church on my side against them. But folks, how do you reconcile these verses of Scripture if Jesus said you can't help somebody else if you got stuff of your own in your own life to deal with, but yet he says if somebody does your own, go to him and talk to him? How can they fit together? Well, folks, it's real simple. And that is, he's saying the only way you're going to be able to help somebody is if you're not in a position where you're trying to lord it over them or show them that they did wrong or get one up on them. You're going to have to be objective about your own life and your own situation so that this is not a gotcha situation. And most people aren't willing to do that. Most people are not willing to look at themselves objectively and see, wait a minute, what are my issues? He's not talking about my issues versus your issues. He's talking about live in a way that you examine yourself. Paul said it this way. Paul said in writing to the the Corinthians about the way that they were taking communion. He said, let a man examine himself so that he doesn't fall into condemnation of the world. We should live our lives in such a way that we're examining ourselves. So that if we do something that causes somebody else a problem, we ought to be the first one to know it, not them. And if we will live that way, then we are qualified to help somebody with their own problems. That's why family situations are so tough. Because it's hard to be emotionally uninvolved 
or take a position, a neutral position, where we just care about the other person rather than, you remember I told you, I told you so won't work when you're trying to help somebody else in their situations. And why do we want to help them? Do we want to point them, point out the situations? Here's where you did me wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. If so, you're not qualified. It'll never work. That's what Jesus says. You hypocrite. Take care of your own stuff first. But the love of God should cause us to live in such a way that we take care of our own stuff continuously, shouldn't it? That's why in many cases it takes outside interference or outside help. Because you get two people. I've had situations where, where, well, most situations, honestly, most uh, marriage counseling situations, if they've already progressed to where it's a, a real uh, crisis situation, you get two people sitting there trying to convince me that they're both the Antichrist. She'll swear up and down, I didn't know who he was. I married the Antichrist. And she'll say, he'll turn around and say, well, she's Jezebel and, you know, all this kind of stuff. They may not use the words, but, boy, that's what they're trying to communicate. And you hear the stories, and one says, here's what she did. And the other says, here's what he did. And, you're, and I'm sitting there in the middle thinking, well, you were certainly wrong when you did this. And as soon as I say you were wrong when you did this, she jumps in and says, yeah, see, I've been telling you that all along. Well, I just lost him. You can't do anything for him. When somebody's trying to do that, and then I'll turn and I'll say to her, well, you were wrong when you did this, that, and the other. And he'll take this smug look and say, told you, told you. Well, how do you, how do you break that impasse? The only way you can break that impasse is to get them to stop looking at each other and start looking at, e- at themselves. And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. He's saying you've got to take care of your own stuff before you can ever help somebody else. But we're supposed to be in a situation where we can help other people. So we should live our lives in such a way that we look at ourselves objectively so that we can be in a position to help. And then and only then can reconciliation be made. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 18. He's saying, here's how to reconcile. The way to reconcile is if somebody's done something wrong, go to them privately. Why? Because privately they can save face. You remember that was one of the things that Joseph did with his brothers. He didn't come out in public and announce what terrible guys that his brothers were. He didn't even say anything ahead of time about here's how I got here. My brothers, if they ever come, be on the lookout, put wanted posters up for them at the, at the borders or anything like that. When they finally did come, he dealt with them privately so that they could save face. But even Joseph didn't immediately reconcile with his brothers. He tested them. John the Baptist said something that was real interesting when the Pharisees came to him to be baptized. He's he's, uh, preaching, repent, you know, for the Messiah's coming. Many of the Pharisees and the religious leaders came to him, and he asked them, he questioned them about it. He said, what have you come to me to be baptized for? Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, and then we'll talk. See, folks, when it comes to reconciliation, for forgiveness to turn into reconciliation, there has to be a time where you can see that things have changed. And nobody is required to accept, other than on faith, just choosing to believe the best of somebody else. Nobody is required to accept that it never happened or that it will always be different from now and we'll never have this problem again. Those are things that have to be proven. That's why you can get a, a couple that uh, may have had uh, infidelity or some problems in their marriage. You can get a couple back together, and they're walking in forgiveness, but that trust has to be reestablished. And only when that trust is reestablished can there be reconciliation. So forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same things. They can become joined together, but they're not the same things. 
This idea, it, it, it just frustrates me to no end. This idea that some people have that you need to, to put away the past. You need to look past the fact that somebody abused you or molested you and all this kind of stuff and, and, and treat them like it never happened. Folks, God doesn't treat things like they never happened. If God treated things like they never happened, there would not be a great white throne judgment. God doesn't, the world doesn't stand before God at the end and God says, well, Jesus went to the cross, so don't worry about it. We'll just treat it like it never happened. That's not the way it works. We have to answer for it. Now, thankfully, we can answer for it in Jesus by making Jesus the Lord of our lives so that we don't bear the brunt of it. But even there, it's required. An answer is required for reconciliation to be made. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? This this sloppy love of God thing that so many people have, it's, it's not scriptural. This idea that some people have about unconditional love. Now, folks, God does love us unconditionally. But what so many people are using this idea of unconditional love for is just an excuse to sin. And that's just wrong. And as a spiritual person, I'll judge that. I won't judge the people. I'll pray for the people. But you judge that as an individual who knows the Bible. Do you understand that? This idea that people have in the, in the world that's, that's so common among the young people now, well, nobody should be able to judge me. Folks, judge me all you want to. I'm going to live right, so I don't care if you judge me or not. The people that are afraid of being judged are the people that are wanting to sin and don't want to hear about it. I don't care if you judge me. And by the way, we all judge each other anyway. Everybody does. I mean, it's a joke to think that nobody's doing it already. In fact, the people that are saying nobody should be judging them are judging the other people that are trying to live right. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. It's absolutely the truth. They're judging people for holding a higher standard. They're judging people that are saying there should be family values, there should be moral standards. I know you agree with this. But they're judging people too. So this idea that nobody judges and nobody's supposed to judge, that's hogwash. You're supposed to judge everything. Folks, policemen judge according to the law that's on the books. That's why they arrest people. Now, the courts decide whether or not they're guilty, but the law, the, the, law, the policemen make the determinations. They make judgments based on the written law. Well, folks, the word of God is the written law. Now, let's take the last word. Let's take restoration. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul's writing to the church about restoration. You can have forgiveness without reconciliation. In fact, there are some people you can't be reconciled to. If I've got issues with my father and I finally forgive him, but now he's dead, how do you reconcile with your dead relative? How's that possible? It's not. I can forgive something that's been done wrong, but you can't reconcile with somebody that doesn't, uh, that's not there, that's not present. You can't reconcile with somebody that doesn't take an equal position in the situation. You can't reconcile with somebody that denies that it ever happened. It's impossible. You can't do it and you're wasting your time trying. And it's not even required of you. Galatians chapter 6. Notice uh, verse 1. It says, Paul's writing by the Holy Ghost. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, fault means sin. You which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know why there's so little restoration in the church? 
because there are so few spiritual people. Now, this is not just talking about restoration of leaders. There is a place for restoration of leadership. But it's talking about people being restored in the body of Christ, too. Paul's not writing this just to, to, to preachers. He's writing this to the church. For example, if there's a scandal in the church and somebody has done something wrong, how do they ever get back in with people? You've got some people in the church. They're going to look at them and they're going to throw them away as far as their attitudes and their their concerns uh, are, are involved. They're going to say, I'm never going to have anything else to do with them. But what if that person is truly repentant? What's the issue then? Do they have to move away? Do they have to find somebody that doesn't know them? Do they have to find some place to start over from scratch? What about these things? Paul is writing to the church saying there's a place for restoration. But notice the first thing that he says. He says the number one thing is you're not going to have restoration unless you have somebody spiritual involved. You which are spiritual restore such a one. That's why there is so little restoration in the church because the church is filled with so many unspiritual people. Now, what is a spiritual person? Well, a spiritual person is one that judges all things. He judges all things according to the word. A spiritual person is going to be somebody that looks at their own life objectively, so they're not walking around with a stick in their own eye trying to tell somebody else what their problems are. They're qualified because they're putting the word of God in practice in their own lives, which is the real key. I mean, that's the key to everything. That's the key to forgiveness. Is the key to reconciliation, if it's possible. It's the key to restoration. Is to live according to the word. Folks, anybody can stumble and fall. And notice that's the very thing that he says about this. He said, you that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What he's saying is, recognize that you could have fallen just as easy as the other guy fell. Well, that does away with a I'm above you attitude then, doesn't it? It does away with this, you ought to do what I tell you to do because I know God. No, it's one of these things, look, everybody trips up. We found out about where you tripped up in this situation. You may not know where I tripped up, but anybody can fall. Anybody can stumble and fall. And the spirit of meekness means a teachable spirit, somebody that is able to be taught of the Lord and should be taught to such a degree that they look at their own life and uh, examine their own life objectively so that they're not living in some kind of sin. You which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Turn with me over to Second Timothy. Let's see something that Paul told Timothy. Paul said something to Timothy as a minister that gets into a little bit more detail, takes care of some of the more specific issues where qualifications are concerned to be able to help somebody and restore them. Notice what he said. Second Timothy chapter 2. Let's start in verse 24. He said, And the servant of the Lord, he's talking about a minister, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Well, that's a character trait, isn't it? In other words, it's not somebody that's trying to start problems, but it's somebody that's dealing gently with other people, knowing where they're coming from. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt or able to teach, and patient. In meekness, here's this word meekness again, being teachable, instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. 
What does it tell us? It tells us a couple of things right off the bat. Notice it says that the only way that somebody can be restored is if they want it to be. To recover themselves. Nobody can recover you. You have to be willing to recover yourself. Now notice what it says about people that get tripped up into sin. It says that they've fallen into the snare of the devil. The devil has tripped them up. It says that they are doing things that oppose themselves. Paul is trying to make the point that the way to get across to people is try to convince them, try to show them, try to reveal to them, what you're doing is not hurting me, what you're doing is hurting you. You ever been guilted or guilted by your family into doing something? My family has never done this to me. Uh, at least my mom's never done this to me. But uh, uh, but but so many times I hear of people that uh, the mothers and fathers are saying, "Well, are you coming home for Christmas this year?" Well, we just haven't seen you in forever. And I was just thinking the other day about those eighteen hours of labor that I had for with bringing you into the world. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that families try to guilt and guilt their their kids or whoever into doing what they want them to do. Well, even if you do what they want, you resent it. The attitude, the idea that it's you got to do this for me. That's what Paul is saying doesn't work spiritually. He's saying it does not work. He said, you've got to take the position that you're out for the well-being of the other person. And the way that you do that, the attitude that you have to bring to the table, if you're going to do that, is you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to be gentle. You're going to have to be teachable yourself without a know-all attitude, without having all the answers. You're going to have to be somebody, in other words, that's able to be taught by God, taught from the Word, so that you are willing to make changes and adjustments in your own life. He said, if you do that, there's a good chance that you can get someone, you can convince someone, you can influence someone to recover themselves. You can't do it for them. And if they won't do it, you can't do it without them. But you have an opportunity to bring them back into a position where they can see and make the adjustments that they need to so that they can escape the snare of the devil. You know, one of the saddest things, one of the most frustrating things is when you see people, loved ones, you know, whether they're family members or just people you know, that are going down the devil's road acting like they're having a high heel time. Well, what do you do? Well, one thing that doesn't work is to keep hammering them and telling them they're going down the devil's road. Because pretty soon they'll just shut, shut you off and quit listening to you. So what do you do? Well, I found one of the better things to do, in some cases the only thing that I know to do, is to pray, Lord, show them the road they're on. Because unless they're willing to recover themselves off the wrong road, you're wasting your time. And you may be alienating yourself from them. You may be doing more harm by trying to tell them what's right, tell them what's true, tell them what they ought to do. That's why family members have such a hard time reaching other family members for the Lord. Brother Hagin used to say this. He said family members seldom are able to reach one another for the Lord because that means one family member has to admit to the other family member that they were right and the other was wrong. And that's tough to do. But, folks, there's a place for us to help each other. There's a place for us to restore one another. Now, that restoration should come with evidence. Look over in, uh, well, we're right here in 2 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me show you something that that Paul said. 
Notice in verse 8, it says, Likewise must the deacons be grave. It doesn't say they must be in a grave. It says they must be grave. Serious, in other words, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Now, folks, this is what we know of as the equivalent of ushers, the ministry of helps, children's ministry workers, and so forth. That's what deacons really mean, the way deacons were used in the early days of the church. We've changed titles. We've changed, um, you know, the, the names of the positions. But that's really what the deacons are. Deacons are helpers in the church. And he's saying these are the requirements for helpers in the church. But even so, these helpers should be proved before they put, in a, put them in a position to... to uh, where they can do some damage, where they can misrepresent the church or represent the church in a wrong way. Look at all the stuff that's happening with, with in, on the national scene. What are these people thinking, sending pictures of their private parts all over the Internet and then trying to run for mayors of some of the largest cities in the country? And then you've got these poor, silly people, mostly Christians. You've got these poor, silly people saying, well... We should forgive. You know, forgiveness just says, forgiveness always gives people a second chance. No, it doesn't. Forgiveness says, I'm willing to forgive you so that I'm free from it, but now prove yourself. This idea that that nothing matters. Are you kidding me? The fact that people are even considering this. And bless these poor wives' hearts. Standing up here in these press conferences, standing next to these idiots. <laughs> saying, well, I love him. I feel so bad for these women. I want to get the women saved. The men deserve hell. <laughs> I don't mean that literally. Although literally they do. But it's ridiculous. The things that are going on in the world around us are ridiculous. And you got Christians, bless our darling hearts, you got Christians just calling into the radio show saying, well, you know, God gives us another chance. So we should give another chance to our leaders too. Are you serious? Folks, leaders can be restored, but they've got to prove themselves. Because once you violate the trust of leadership, you are disqualified from leading. Where are people going to be led by this idiot that's taking pictures of his privates? Now, how do you restore somebody like that? How do you restore somebody in a position of leadership? Well, folks, it depends on the circumstance. There is no blanket answer to that. For example, if there's a situation, and I've known of a situation like this, where a pastor got caught up in in, um, adultery. It was quiet. It wasn't anything that anybody knew about. It wasn't anything that the church was aware of. The family, the the other couple, the the wife, the woman that he had the affair with, and uh, well, the two couples, the the two couples that were involved, the pastor and his wife, and the other couple that were involved. They sat down. They talked about this. They said, "What what's the best way to handle this?" They decided that the other couple would just move away. They were planning to, wanted to anyway. They just moved away. They kept it quiet. They didn't do anything about it. The pastor had called before he uh, before it was ever discovered. He called another minister friend of his and said, "Look, I'm in trouble. I've fallen into sin. Uh, what do I do?" And so before this thing was ever in, ever got, came to light, before the other people involved ever, or the other spouses ever found out, 
there was a, a group of ministers that went in and sat down with everybody and, and talked this thing out and, and looked at it from the, from every angle. They told the other, the other husband, they said, look, you've got every right to expose this guy if that's what you want to do. If, if that's, you know, if that's what you feel like is the right thing to do, you have a right to do it. What do you want to do? And he said, well, uh, there's so many people here in the church that, uh, that we love and we've cared about and have known for many years. It wouldn't do anything but hurt them. It wouldn't help anything. It would just hurt them. So he took a, a, a magnanimous position to move his family to another city, place where they wanted to go anyway. They were already, had already been talking about it before these things happened. And they kept it quiet. And the pastor was restored. He was brought back into a place where he could prove himself over a period of time without anybody knowing, without any any damage being done to the church. I think that was one of the most wonderful ways for it to have worked. But it can't work like that in every situation. What good would it have done? I mean, the, the pastor, he just fell. He slipped up and he fell. Had it become public, he would have been disqualified from pastoring. But the fact that he was taking care of it, the fact that he was the one that brought it out to his friends, his other ministry associates and so forth, the fact that uh, they let certain people in the staff know that uh, uh, that it was necessary, the board they let know, but everybody kept this quiet. And folks, that it was an evidence to me that it was one of the most supernatural things possible because there were about 10 or 15 people that had to have been notified and everybody kept the thing quiet. Twenty years later, it came out that something happened. And everybody involved was able to step up and say, yep, we were aware of this. We handed it like this. The pastor stepped down from some of his administrative duties and some of the things, uh, legal responsibilities where the church was concerned. The board took that over. And here's how we have provided for things. And look at how God spared the church. And, and 20 years later, the church just had this hug everybody's neck type thing. But boy, that's an unusual situation, wouldn't you agree? Most of these things blow up in everybody's faces. But this church, this one church, this one situation I know about, it was able to survive. The church was able to thrive. The pastor and his family was able, were able to be spared. The other family reconciled. They were able to go on with their lives without any adverse circumstances involved because everybody approached it in a spiritual manner. I'm not sure you could get that many spiritual people in one place. And as a matter of fact, it was a testimony to the pastor's work there at the church that he had raised up so many spiritual people. Was it required to be done that way? No. Did the other people have a right to do it otherwise? Yep. But they took a spiritual position. Who's this going to help if we make this public? It's not going to help anybody. It's just going to hurt everybody. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Here's the question. Question number one. Have we forgiven everybody that's done us wrong? If not, you have a responsibility to. Question number two. Are we living in such a way, examining ourselves so that we can be a help to somebody else if they do stumble and fall? And question number three. If something ever happened in any area of life that we're involved in, are we in a position to be spiritual enough to help restore somebody instead of destroy them. Can I ask you a question? How many of you, and I don't want to show of hands here, this is a rhetorical question. Please don't raise your hands. How many of you are glad God doesn't reveal your secrets? Have you ever looked at the scriptures in the Bible, and there are several of them that say that, that say that love covers a multitude of sins? There's a verse of scripture in Proverbs that says it is the, the delight or the glory of a king to hide a matter. 
These are all parts of spiritual growth. These are all parts of spiritual developments, spiritual development. These are all characteristics of being a spiritual person. So that we're not looking to lord something over somebody or show that we're right and they're wrong. But we're always looking, looking out to helping somebody and promoting them and helping them to be the best that they can be. That's what the love of God does, folks. Now, in order to do that, you forfeit your right to expose. You forfeit your right to say you're right and you're, somebody else is wrong. You forfeit the right to gossip. You forfeit the right to hold somebody responsible for the wrong that they've done in their own lives. But oh, what a, how, how much it's worth it. It's so worth it to be able to help somebody, to be able to, for everybody, I look at everybody involved in this church situation that, that, that I just described to you. Everybody there is going to have a reward in heaven for having kept the things of God going forward and restoring people rather than destroying them. Amen. Paul said the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. That's the kind of love that's on the inside of every one of us. We have to develop it. We have to choose to operate in it and walk in it. But that's the kind of love that's already inside of you because God lives there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your love and your kindness and your mercy toward us. We thank you, Father, that you don't expose when we mess up, when we fall and stumble. We thank you, Father. Instead, you encourage us. You lift us up. You tell us that nothing's changed. You still have a plan for our lives. We pray, Father, that we could be those same kind of people. Help us to grow and mature in the things of God so that we recognize, first, our responsibility to forgive those who have done us wrong. But secondly, Father, that we recognize what forgiveness really means and what real forgiveness is. That it's not what the world says it is. It's not what even other Christians tell us it is. It's what your word says. Father, thank you that because we do walk in the love of God, we are free. We're free from condemnation, but also, Lord, we're free to help others. We're all in this together, Lord. Help us to see that. We're all subject to stumble and fall. Help us to see and recognize that. Help us to be teachable. To be people that we examine our own lives. So to be ready to help, quick to help, to lift others up instead of to bring them down. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that you're always there to encourage us. I thank you that you keep our secrets and help us to grow through them so that they don't stop us from your plan and your purpose. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Folks, the forgiveness of God is a wonderful thing. The things that we've been forgiven of can only come through the blood of Jesus. And that same blood was shed for people that have done us wrong.
those that we've held grudges against, those that we've held unforgiveness toward, that same blood of Jesus was shed for them. We need to always keep that in mind. Jesus shed his blood for the people that do us wrong just as much as he shed it for us. Amen. Let's all stand. Say this with me. The love of God is shed abroad in my heart. I love like God loves. Therefore, I forgive like God forgives. I have the ability to overlook everything that's done wrong toward me. I have the ability to pay no attention to wrongs I have suffered. Because the love of God lives big in me, I always help others instead of bringing them down. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we live up to that? We're supposed to. God bless you. We love you. Have a great day. You're dismissed.